This month, the union has designated as Religious Liberty Month. And so they sent out this little brochure on the biblical roots of freedom. And they said, you as a head elder can speak this while your pastor is gone. And I thought, how nice. So it's always good. For those of you who are wondering, our pastor will be back next week from his vacation. This week he is down at Crawfordville. And he will be back next week. So when we think about religious freedom, we always think, or at least maybe it's just me that always thinks this, but when I was a child growing up in the Adventist church, religious liberty week was when the religious liberty secretary came from the conference office and scared everything out of me um, as a child because he told about this new computer called the beast and it was going to put the mark on everybody and he told about everything that was bad in the world and we forget sometimes that religious liberty is so much deeper than that it's so much more than scaring people it's what we want to do is give opportunity to people and I appreciate the way this particular talk is formulated in that it goes deep into the roots of where this comes from and goes back to original freedoms and where they are where they come from so many times in our world we look at our world and we look at quote freedom it's been a topic even in our current debates in our current um, re political environment but where did that come from how did it get here and we have so much to thank our God for bringing this to us and when we see things like Jesus in inaugurating his ministry he wanted to make sure and make it very clear why he came to earth we go back to the book of Luke in chapter 4 verses 18 to 19 where he's starting his ministry here in Luke and he is referring to why he came as he says here he said he came in the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he has anointed him meaning Jesus to proclaim the good news to the captive he came to set those who are captives free and here we see freedoms at the core of Jesus' mission. Of course, if you were part of the elite at that time, you heard that freedom as he's going to destroy the Romans and set up his kingdom here. But as we dive deeper into this, let's learn more about what the freedom that he was bringing. What was at the core of Jesus' mission? The reason why he came to earth and the deep roots of freedom particularly religious freedom. The root of religious freedom is not just human rights or the fruit of a human search for religious liberty or for autonomy or for self-determination. The, the roots of religious liberty, biblically speaking, are actually in God himself. Let us start with an episode back in the book of Exodus that is helpful to bring out this meaning to us. We go back to a burning bush and a man named Moses standing in front of 
this burning bush. And here from that burning bush, God speaks to Moses and appoints him to go to Pharaoh. It is interesting that Moses appoints him, or I mean that Moses is appointed to go to Pharaoh and what that mission was all about. It was to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. It was all about freedom. In that context, when God asked Moses, well, he, he gets a little bit nervous and he says, if I go and if I stand before the people of Israel, they will say, kind of in our lingo that we use today, and who are you? Um, why, why are you here? And God responds and he says, when they ask you who sent you, tell them, I am Yahweh. There is so much in this brief reply. In fact, in the reply, I am, there's a whole sermon there, just in that particular topic. But if we look at what the name that God gives, what is in that name? What does it mean? How is it connected with freedom and with our topic today? In fact, the name is connected to the freedom that God is the God of freedom. He told Moses, basically, I am. But what is the meaning behind this name? The word comes from Hebrew. And in Hebrew, this I am not only means past, it means now, it means future, and it means the entire continuity. If you want to translate it literally, it could be the one who is, or the ever-present one, the eternal one, the everlasting one. It is not something that's as easy to translate into English because we like past tense or future tense. In almost this is a higher plane where God is saying this language is above human comprehension because I am. God is telling Moses, the one who sent you is not confined by time or place. The one who sent you is actually the one who cannot be limited, the only one who is ultimately free. God is the one who will not be limited. He is the autonomous one, the one who doesn't need anyone and who doesn't need anything. You and I, because of the English conjugation, we say, yesterday I was, today I speak, and I can claim that I am, but tomorrow I am not sure. This is because I am a dependent person. All human beings are dependent on other things, such as I must eat to live, I must drink in order to stay alive. I need the saving grace of God at all times, otherwise I cannot live. For without God, we are nothing. It is only his wanting to be with us that keeps us alive. And once again, there's just this whole sermon topic of wanting to be with God and God with us, of him providing that eternal life, because when Adam ate of that fruit, he was to die. And he would have died had not God already had the plan ready for him. In reading about this, um, there's a book by M.L. Andreasen called The Sanctuary. And he talks here on page 11 in the first paragraph on that page about 
how the plan had to be in place so that if Adam sinned, when Adam took that fruit, that, of course, in our human recognition of death, why is it that Adam was not immediately killed? But we see that God and Jesus stepped in and filled that breach and said, the plan now is active. Because we have already thought this through, and Jesus will become that sacrificial person so that we may live, so that we may become part of what God is. When we look closely at this example in Exodus, the themes that God conveys in the scripture are very simple. You can divide this book of Exodus into three parts. The first one is the freedom is about freedom, God telling Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. This was the announcement of freedom. So we can say the first action then is freedom announced. But this freedom announced is not going to be realized immediately because we see that Pharaoh has hardened his heart and refuses to let God's people go. The freedom that is announced is now delayed. An example of Christ saying, I will make you free, but it's delayed. It took ten plagues for Pharaoh to abdicate and finally let God's people go. After the tenth plague, now freedom is realized. Very simply, the first focus is on freedom. Freedom announced. Freedom delayed. Freedom is now realized and is to be accomplished. But what happened afterwards? Afterwards, once they were liberated, then God asked Moses and his people to meet him at a special appointed place called Mount Sinai. The time that God gave his law was the third month after they had left Egypt, which was what we now call Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the Pentecost was the gift of the law. And in the New Testament, Pentecost became the gift of the Holy Spirit. Too many people today separate those two and make them different. That there is a new covenant now that separates us from the past and from this old covenant of the law. And now we are on, only under grace. But of interest here is God gave his people the gift of law. And why was that given? The law at this time was given in order to preserve their freedom, as a matter of fact, the importance of freedom. It is as if God is saying to his people, he's saying, I am the Lord your God who has liberated you from Egypt, who has taken you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. And within this is a paradox that the Ten Commandments were given not to restrict people's freedoms. On the contrary, it was given to allow them to remain in the realm of freedom. It is as if God is telling them, Now you have been liberated, but if you want to remain free, one, do not have other gods before me, because I'm the God of your freedom. You will enslave yourself again if you do not alienate, and you will alienate yourself again. If you want to remain free, as I have said, one, do not have other gods before me. Two, 
do not create graven images. That is below your dignity. Three, do not take my name in vain. I cannot be confined. I cannot be manipulated. And then we have the Sabbath at the heart of the Ten Commandments as a gift from God. First of all, as a remembrance of creation. This is what he actually said in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day, because God created heaven and earth, but he rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath is then the commemoration of creation. However, it is much more. We also see in Deuteronomy chapter 5 where he says, I have given you my Sabbath because I have liberated you from Egypt. And all the commandments are framed within this context of that freedom, of that liberation. When you look at the Old Testament, time and time again, God reminds his people why freedom is so important. Actually, the object lessons of the festivals were connected with this freedom. We have Passover, the freedom from slavery and a bondage. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. With that, it is connected also the Feast of First Fruit, even freedom from poverty in its own way. And Pentecost, the freedom to have food, harvest, and to connect with God. And then you come to the Feast of the Trumpets, the Feast from Judgment, Yom Kippur, or the Feast of the Tabernacle. All these festivals were actually connected to freedom and, interestingly, with the Sabbath. But the sabbatical year, every seventh year, the Jubilee, every 50th year, even 70 times 7, 49, and the 50th year were actual Feasts of Freedom. Because here we see in these years of jubilees, the slaves actually were set free. Land was returned to the owner. Note that it doesn't say it was kept by the indebtor. It was actually returned to the original owner. It's an interesting concept that God has for freeing and the freedom, it's written so much in everything about what he wanted the Israelites to be and to do. And then we come to where the prophet Isaiah is talking about this freedom. And connecting that freedom of God's absolute will, that God who is free wants to free his people. And that same text being quoted by Christ when he begins his ministry. We can see this freedom has deep biblical roots when it comes down to the name of even Jesus himself. He told the angel to tell Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. Now it's interesting to us how much that name has meaning. But when we look at it, it was translated into English from the original Greek, Isos. But that doesn't seem to have any meaning because it was also translated from the original Hebrew, Yahshua. When we break this apart, it is interesting how much meaning this name that God told Mary to name the Christ child. The first part, Yahweh, Yahoo, 
is an abbreviation of the name of God. It refers back to that burning bush and Moses being called to bring out his people. It refers to I am, the eternal one, the one who is, the one who calls us to be, or in other words, the creator. The name, this first part, the creator, the everlasting one, then lends into the second part. We read in the second part to mean literally Yeshua or to liberate. So here we have someone, the creator, who liberates you in the name of Jesus given to us as a small baby. Here we take a person, and when we talk about this liberate, is to take a person out of a dangerous zone and to free them or liberate them, and to make them free. The name of Jesus not only speaks about his identity and the one who God is, but also the mission. The content of the mission itself is to liberate. The eternal God, the everlasting one, the creator, not an angel, not a creature, has finally come to liberate us, that is, Jesus. No wonder when he came, he could say, I have come to liberate, to free. We also see another text in John chapter 8. If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Jesus then came to literally bring freedom. You could take, for example, in the Beatitudes and how they are all connected about this freedom that he wants to give to each one of us. Read them again and see what it's talking about after each one. Maybe even for a topic like this today, we could even just limit ourselves to Galatians. And reading from Galatians, it's interesting when we read that book where God, or where God is presenting it to us through Paul. He says in chapter 2, there was a problem in the Galatians church. The problem is that there were some Christians going to spy. They were going there to try and find fault with the people that were attending. Now, luckily, we don't do that here. We don't find any fault with anyone. But when this was happening back in ancient times, there were other, quote, who called themselves Jewish Christians who were coming to check out these Galatians, these these Gentiles, and make sure they were on the straight and narrow. They were trying to find the fault. And he even interestingly said he did not give them an inch because freedom is so important that no one should be allowed to take away freedom. So Paul resisted these people. In the development of his thought in the epistle to the Galatians, he told them that it is in fact for freedom that Christ has set us free. He is saying we are freed for freedom. Maybe we should take another analogy of this idea. The children of Israel were liberated from Egypt in order to be free. But free from what? Free to enter the fellowship with God because without freedom it is impossible to enter into fellowship with God. There is something really beautiful about Christianity. The message of Jesus, the eternal gospel we have and how we are free to access God. 
in so many religions of the world, we see that they emphasize meditation and intermediaries and actions between the self and the deity. But here Jesus is saying, you know what? You don't need a holy place. You don't need a holy time. You have direct access to God. You have all that you need. You don't need a priest. You don't need intermediaries. God is your Father. You can have direct access. You don't even need a holy language because at Pentecost, people began to speak and were heard in their own tongues. God knows your heart and will listen to your heart when you are talking with him. Christianity is liberation. liberation. A revelation actually based on these freedoms to have access to God. But let us return to the Apostle Paul in an interesting chapter 5 of Galatians. He is going to develop now what it means to be a Christian and to be free. What is the profile of a free Christian? A free Christian is someone who lives according to the Holy Spirit. In that same chapter, he says, Now you are freed, but not to live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he mentioned that if the Spirit makes you free, that is where the Spirit is. There is freedom, therefore the Spirit makes you free. But how to explain this concretely? You see, in Galatians, in that episode, there was a problem. Christians were divided. They were fighting one another. And Apostle Paul tells them, Well, this is a sign that you are not living according to the Spirit. If you have divisions, tension, quarreling, fighting among you, then you are living in the flesh. There are fruits, he says, that are shown when you are actually with the Spirit. There are nine, and he says, they are love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and temperance. When a person is filled with these, that person shows that he or she is free. Freedom comes by embracing and accepting the fruit of God, because all these gifts actually of love, joy, patience, these are God's attributes. But when you participate in the life of God, when you participate in what God gives you, this new life, this newborn Christian, they embrace this freedom. They embrace these fruits. When you are free, then nothing can confine you, and this is the reason why. Even Paul and Silas, while they were in prison, could sing because they were free. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding was indwelling in them, inhabiting them. They were free even though they were chained. This is the case today. You will find people who would rather be in prison than deny Christ. People who are free inside but who could even lose their religious freedoms because, as you know, in most parts of the world, actually, three-fourths of the world, religious freedom is restricted either by government or by popular hostility. But Christians value Christ more than even their regular freedoms. 
There is a very interesting verse in the book of Revelations in chapter 12, verse 11. They do not love their lives until death, meaning that they love God even more than their own lives. In the book of Revelation, it is interesting to see that Christians wait on God to come to bring everlasting freedom. And God reassures them and says, wait, God is coming soon. The second coming is really the hope of Christians because ultimately then God will liberate not only humanity, but even creation itself. As we know from the book of Romans, creation is bondage also. But it will make free soon when Christ comes again. Meanwhile, we as Christians are to promote religious liberty because it is connected with human dignity. It is connected to the actual fact of being created in God's image. We celebrate freedom. We honor religious freedom. But more importantly, we celebrate God who is free, who is coming for us soon. We celebrate God I am.